0: Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom
1: of The Washington Post. Washington
2: This is Cleve with The Washington
1: Post. It's Ellen
0: Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 23rd. Today, why the Senate is voting on shutdown bills that have no chance of passing. Plus, the end of the L.A. teacher strike and the local toll of trade war tariffs. On Thursday, two very different bills to end the partial shutdown of the federal government will head to the Senate floor for a vote. One is basically what you can call the
1: Trump plan.
0: Sungmin Kim covers the White House for The Post. Our plan includes
2: the following.
1: The outlines of which were discussed during the president's speech on Saturday.
2: Number one is three years
3: of legislative relief for 700,000 DACA recipients brought here unlawfully by their parents at a young age many years
2: ago.
0: The Trump plan offers some relief to recipients of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. It also helps people living under temporary protection status. Basically, all of that is in exchange for the $5.7 billion that Trump needs to build a wall.
1: The bottom line for Democrats is that while you can negotiate immigration policy, they are not going to do it while the government remains closed. The second bill, backed by Democrats, is what's called a street funding bill. There is no wall funding, there are no wall provisions, and it will keep the government operating through February 8th, so a very short amount of time. But it is meant to, in theory, open up the government and buy time to work out a broader immigration deal that could include extra money for border barriers or whatever Democrats are willing to give him. And both are expected to fail. I firmly believe at this point in time, without any change in the dynamics of the Senate and of the conversations with the president, it's fundamentally designed not to pass. What may happen after these votes fail is that there might be a third option that emerges.
0: Neither of these two bills have enough votes to pass.
1: So why is the Senate voting on them? Sometimes you just have to vote and get it out of your system to break the logjam and break the impasse. And maybe the thinking is that it'll show the president, show the public what cannot pass the Senate. So what can pass and kind of give the policymakers an outline to go from there. But Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, said at the beginning when the shutdown happened that he's just not going to put show votes up. But his members are getting pretty restive and restless and want to at least show that they are doing something, particularly as federal employees who are affected by the shutdown are about to miss their second paycheck on Friday. I want to talk more about why it is that Trump's plan
0: is such a non-starter, because it seems like Democrats have long been talking about the plight of dreamers, you know, people who came to the States as young people and have been living here for years and years, and that they're sort of like the top tier of people that Democrats are trying to protect. Why is that not a good enough bargaining chip for Democrats to be willing to kind of throw over some money to Trump for his border wall?
1: So there are a few points on that. One is that they are not going to negotiate while the government remains closed. They can have discussions. They can have negotiations. But the government has to be open in the meanwhile because every day that goes by without a paycheck for these workers, it's just more pain onto them, onto the economy. So that's point number one. Point number two is that They emphasize correctly that the president, this administration, ended those programs. So they're only in that plight because the Trump administration put them there. You know, in their words, like, how dare the president use a problem that he caused to get something that he wants? And number three, the dreamers themselves don't want to be used as bargaining chips. I can't tell you how many times I've heard dreamers say, we don't want to be used as a essentially a pawn for a wall that we fundamentally oppose. So while
0: Trump has been talking about DACA and dreamers as like a negotiating tactic The Supreme Court has also been talking about DACA. What did they say?
1: So basically, the lower courts had ruled in favor of the program, even though the Trump administration said in 2017 that they would end it, the federal courts have intervened and said, no, the Trump administration did not end it in a legal fashion. The administration obviously appealed that to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court indicated this week that they would not take up the case, which means the lower court decisions stand. So that is a victory for people seeking to protect the DACA program.
0: How does that affect whether it remains a kind of ceiling issue for Trump to bargain on?
1: Well, it looks like the Trump administration was banking on the fact that the Supreme Court would actually side with them and say he did have the right to end this program unilaterally. And that, in theory, would give them more leverage in future immigration negotiations say, look, this program is about to end. Give me my wall or give me more immigration enforcement provisions. I mean, if it became true that these 800,000 DREAMers who are protected by this program were in imminent danger of losing their status, then you could see Democrats in particular say Oh, no, we have to act. And we are willing to bargain with the Trump administration to protect these dreamers.
0: Obviously, the shutdown has put a lot of pressure on a lot of lawmakers who are hearing from folks back home who are really suffering. Are there any Democrats who are getting to a point where they're like, look... He's asking for $5.7 billion. Like, at this point, the shutdown might be costing us that much. Like, just give it to him and let's get this over with.
1: There's one in particular in the House. His name's Colin Peterson, a conservative Democrat from Minnesota, who basically said that just given the border wall funding. But he is a big outlier among the House Democrats who now control the majority.
2: The only reason that they are shutting down the government is very simple. They want to try and leverage that shutdown into their proposals on border security.
1: Democrats fundamentally feel that you cannot reward what the president has done, which they believe is taking a hostage, taking the federal government as hostage. And they are not willing to reward that kind of behavior. I have heard from Democratic lawmakers several times that, look... Perhaps in the grander scheme of the federal budget, a few billion dollars is nothing, which is true. But if we give in now... What's he going to ask for next time?
3: One of the
2: things that is clear is that if Donald Trump is successful with shutting down the government this time, he will use this tactic again when we come to debt ceiling, when we come to, you know, the end of the year discussions about uh, appropriations bills. One
1: and those are good questions of- that, the, that Democrats are asking, and that's what they're sticking by for now. It's the if you give a mouse a cookie theory, right? Exactly. <laughs> Very much so. Or a kid in a candy bar. And then for Republicans,
0: I mean, obviously, there is a political cost to breaking ranks with President Trump. But at the same time, they're worried about reelections and about what it'll look like that they were the party that kind of held the government hostage to try to get a border wall that maybe not all of these Republicans really care about. So are any of them kind of looking at the landscape and saying, like, maybe I should just go ahead and vote with the Democrats here To get this over with because i don't think that this is going to end up well for me
1: there are a few i mean we keep mentioning cory gardner of colorado who is probably the most vulnerable senate republican on the ballot next fall most republicans are still sticking with the president and his strategy while all republicans were willing to just let the funding bill go in december without any wall money they're saying well the president has made it clear now what he wants and we are standing by him We will vote for whatever the president says he will support. We don't even care what it looks like. We will just vote for what Trump wants.
0: Because he, I mean, do you think that he really believes that all of the blowback that he'll get for, you know, the IRS not properly functioning and TSA being a disaster and all the bad things happening as a result of the shutdown, that that still won't be powerful enough to kind of counteract the benefits of getting his actual wall built?
1: I think what the president constantly goes back to is the fact that this was a campaign promise. It was basically made on day one when he launched this presidential bid that he was going to build this border wall. He was going to make Mexico pay for it. But that's been pushed aside at this point. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about that that much anymore, even though we try to remind him that he had gone back on that campaign promise. But I think he fundamentally believes this is a campaign promise that he made and he has to live up to it no matter what it takes. Thank you so much, Sungmin. Thanks for having me.
0: Sungmin Kim is a politics reporter for The Post. On Wednesday afternoon, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told President Trump that until the government reopens, the House will not vote on a resolution inviting him to deliver the State of the Union. A week ago, teachers in Los Angeles left their classrooms and began to strike. And what's surprising is that the contentious issues
3: had nothing to do with their own salaries. It was about classroom resources. They wanted more teachers to lower class sizes. They want nurses, they want librarians, more school psychologists, more counselors. Mariah Bullingett covers education for
0: The Post. She went to LA to report on the strike.
2: They're doing it for us, for lower amount of children in class, so we have a better education about that. So we cover what we have to. And I'm proud to announce that pending approval, that we have an agreement. The issue has always been, how do we pay for it? And that issue does not go away now that we have a contract.
0: On Tuesday, L.A. school superintendent Austin Butner announced an agreement to end the strike, a deal that includes more teachers, nurses, and support staff for schools across the district. But even with a new contract, there's no clear plan on how to pay for these increased resources. And Mariah says that's an issue all across the country. So now the strike is
3: coming to an end. Why were teachers able to be successful here? Well, I think they had a lot of leverage. Obviously, not having school in session is really devastating for kids, and they had a lot of public support. The teacher unions, too, in California are very powerful, and they've just experienced a couple of victories The gubernatorial candidate they backed, Gavin Newsom, is now in the governor's office, and as well as the state superintendent for public instruction candidate that they backed is also in office now. So I think that was part of it. They are very powerful in California, and so they were able to do this successfully. I think that so often when we think about teacher
0: strikes, we think about, oh, well, teachers are underpaid and they're just trying to get more money or higher salaries. And it really strikes me that this was a situation where – the teachers weren't striking for their own welfare. It was because of the students, that, like, the resources for students in the L.A. school district are so bad that teachers feel like they have to go on strike just to be able to get more stuff for their classrooms, to get smaller class sizes and to get students in better learning conditions. And I
3: feel like that says something. I mean, absolutely. Some of the conditions that these teachers were facing were very extreme. I've spent a lot of time in Oklahoma, and I've talked to teachers around the country about what their classrooms are like. I had never heard of a classroom with more than 40 kids, and that's a pretty common thing in LA Unified. I spoke to a girl who couldn't sit down in her classroom because there were too many students and not enough desks, so she had to stand for an entire math class. She also didn't have an APUS history teacher. She had to take it online. So some of the conditions they were facing were really bad, and they they were only going to get worse.
0: Obviously, this isn't the first major teacher strike that's happened, even in the last year. I and mean, we've seen strikes in Arizona and North Carolina and Kentucky. What do all of these big teacher strikes have in
3: common? Well, first, I think they're all about resources and underinvestment. But also, I think that there is perhaps changing sentiment about teachers you know the dominant narrative perhaps 4 or 5 years ago was that teacher unions were too strong that they kept bad teachers in public schools and that they needed to be weakened Which is partially why charter schools have become so successful, because
0: of this kind of bad image of teachers' union and of the quality of the teaching in school districts.
3: Absolutely. Those two things go hand in hand. And part of the reason that unions are often opposed to charter schools is because charter school teachers aren't unionized and often don't have the same kind of tenure protections that unionized teachers do have. So I think there's shifting public sentiment about teachers and even teacher unions. Even in right-to-work states where teacher unions are either weak or virtually non-existent, there's growing public sentiment that we need to invest more money in schools, we need to invest more money in teachers. So even in states like Oklahoma, where I spoke to teachers that were opposed to unions and who voted for Donald Trump and who would not ever view themselves as being aligned with unions, they were participating in these job actions. Do you think that the
0: changing sentiment toward big teacher strikes will encourage more teachers in other school districts around the country to also go on
3: strike is like the only way to actually get action on the things that, that they need? Absolutely. I think this is going to lend momentum to other teacher strikes. Teachers in Oakland, California are now looking at striking and teachers in Denver actually will vote soon on whether or not to strike And teachers in Virginia are also going to rally outside of the state capitol for more resources, although they will head back to the classroom after a day. But I believe that this is going to be another year where we're going to see a lot of teacher activism. I feel like it used to be
0: a widely held assumption that being a teacher, being a public school teacher, was a middle class job, that it's a, a job that you can support a family on. And I think that it's been a slow progression to folks understanding that. Like in a lot of places, being a public school teacher is not a middle class job. It's like barely a job that you can survive on.
3: Absolutely. I mean, that's not necessarily the case in Los Angeles where the teachers are better paid. But in Oklahoma, you know, one of the things I did was I called food pantries and I said, do you have teachers? And I even said, this is outrageous, but do you have teachers that use your services? One food pantry I spoke to said, we actually use a principal on our brochure because we want to make teachers aware that they can come. A principal of a school
0: who is a recipient of a food pantry.
3: Yes, absolutely. I spoke to another teacher who was living in a Habitat for Humanity house. And when I spoke to the director of Habitat for Humanity, he said, I never envisioned putting, you know, public school teachers in these houses. This is not who it was intended for, but they make so little that they qualify. So yeah, in some states, it's not even a middle-class job anymore. It's, as you said, it's, you can barely scrape by. And especially considering that these are all jobs that you have to have a college degree and a credential for. Some of these teachers can go work at Starbucks and make more money.
0: Mariah Bellingit is an education reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Good old-fashioned American whiskey.
2: Catoctin Creek's been in business since February of 2009, so next month we celebrate our 10th anniversary.
0: Scott Harris is the founder of Catoctin Creek Distillery Company in Virginia. And a big part of his growing business is selling his rye
2: whiskey in Europe. In March, we had a trip over to the UK, and we had come out of those meetings in March with definite agreements to go forward with a distributor and with about a dozen retailers.
0: Typically, about 25% of Harris's business comes from Europe. But that changed this summer.
3: We'll be imposing tariffs on steel imports and tariffs on aluminum imports.
0: When President Trump enacted new tariffs on European aluminum and steel, Europe retaliated and put its own tariffs on a wide range of American goods, including bourbon and rye.
2: The tariffs were announced, and our distributor in the UK dropped us, completely dropped us, and stopped returning phone calls even.
0: The tariffs are part of the president's larger trade war.
3: We have right now an $800 billion trade deficit with the world. Some people call it a mirror. Tariff
0: Trump is focused in particular on trade with China. But Harris says that the European side of the US trade war is being
2: overlooked. These are small town American jobs that are being impacted. And I just don't think the administration thought that through when they announced the tariffs.
0: Now, with profits from the European market down to nearly zero and the shutdown essentially dominating the national conversation, Harris says that he's not optimistic about trade
2: talks going forward. There's just not much reason for hope at all in the future on this.
0: Gene Whalen originally reported this story for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PostReports. You can learn more about all the stories in today's show over at WashingtonPost.com slash PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing
3: or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry.